in this episode of Boss Files. I've learned over time that being an introvert is a strength. It's how you embrace it and how you bring it into your leadership, and I've done that. And that's why I do speak openly about it. Yeah. I'm not the only introverted leader out there, but I don't need to be the loudest voice in the room. Salesforce President and Chief People Officer Cindy Robbins, a self-described introvert. She says she's learned to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. She's the one who has led the pay equity charge at the tech giant. This is not a Salesforce issue. This is not even a tech industry issue. This goes across multiple industries. It's not a U.S. issue. This is not something that I believe will go away. I think it's just companies will be forced to be more transparent. Born in Southern Texas, she credits her Mexican-American heritage for instilling her work ethic. She was the first in her family to go to college. Her father picked cotton handled a lot of the domestic work at home, while her mother built a career in real estate. Robbins tells me she feels an inherent responsibility to elevate women in the workplace. Here's my conversation with Salesforce's Cindy Robbins. Thank you for being here. It's nice to sit down with you, Cindy. Nice to sit down with you. You recently wrote, uh, Achieving Equality for All of Us is One of Humankind's Greatest Challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like what you're trying to do every day now is tackle that. No small feat. No small feat. You know, um, there, there are a few issues that I'm really, really passionate about. Obviously, one being equal pay mm-hmm. um, and just women in leadership and gender equality, I think, has just been v- just something I've been really, really passionate about. And how do we continue to do that at Salesforce in a meaningful way? And I think that's, it's not just the right thing to do. It, it does improve the state of the world. How would you describe your role at Salesforce today? You've been there how long? So I just celebrated my 12th wow. work anniversary. I think that's about how long I've been here, too. It has it been? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's been just a phenomenal ride. Um, you know, I started actually more than 12 years ago uh, as a consultant, mm-hmm. and then I converted um, and kind of just moved up the ranks through recruitment, then slowly went into HR, and we refer to HR as employee success. And I think that was a really big turning point for me and why I took the head job. Because I wasn't, I wasn't a traditional HR leader. Mm-hmm. And if you look at my background, I didn't grow up through the, the traditional ranks. Right. Um, so for me, it was about what's that next transformation look like? Uh-huh. And how do we make Salesforce a great place to work? Well, how would you describe, Cindy, your mission? Those are your goals. But what's the mission like every day to do that? Oh, the mission is really just around the employee experience, right? It, and it really comes down for me to one word, which is trust. Um, you know, these employees that we bring on thousands and thousands every single year, they trust us with their careers. They trust us that we're going to pay them fairly. Um, they trust us that we're going to provide a safe environment um, and a fun environment. And I think that's something that that's kind of my mission. And then you know, I think what is the next evolution for us at Salesforce when it comes mm-hmm. to the employee experience? Well, when you say safe environment, do you mean by that a place where they can, as employees, truly be their full self? Truly be their full self, speak up, you know, do we give them the avenues yeah. to speak up and voice their views, voice their concerns? I think right now what you're seeing in corporate America, especially, is this heightened sense of transparency around mm-hmm. company culture. And you get there through social platforms like Glassdoor. So this is why you have to make culture so important and you have to work very hard at it. 
Tell me about your oh my moment. That is how you've described it. And you said, look, I didn't have the traditional path through mm -hmm. HR to you know, being the lead of it. But that moment when you found out you were going to report directly to Mark Benioff. Mm -hmm. That was definitely the oh my <laughs> moment. <laughs> because was that, like? that was the first time uh, in the tenure of the company that yeah. HR reported to the CEO. And although I had been at Salesforce for a very long time, I knew Mark, this is a different relationship, one that we had to build and nurture, yeah. and it had to be a trusted one. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely, I was doing the oh my for many months, um, <laughs> and especially in that first year. Yeah. This was, a, this is a very daunting, it's a huge job for me, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden there were things that I had to do. For example, I was thrust into the limelight of speaking to our employee population, thousands of people. I'd never right. done that before. Right. And I'm a very introverted leader, so some of this were just challenges that I had to overcome. This is one of the things that fascinates me about you, mm. that you're an introvert. And yes. you talk openly about being an introvert. Yes. And for people listening to the podcast right now or watching this, they might not know that it's not exactly comfortable for you to sit here. No, it's not. Interviews. I mean, I love you, but well, no. thanks for saying yes. <laughs> How has being an introvert shaped you as a leader? Because you've talked a lot more openly about this recently. I have. I have. I think, you know, early in my career, I knew I was an introvert. I knew I was a shy kid at school. Right. I didn't want to be called on. But I wanted to do good, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to have great grades. I wanted to do good. And I think fundamentally in my career, I knew I wanted to do good. I wanted to influence positive change. Yes. Transformation. And being an introvert, it can be very hard to do that. How do you influence? How do you motivate? How do you inspire? And I've learned over time that being an introvert is a strength. And you can still, it's how you embrace it and how you bring it into your leadership. And I've done that. And that's why I do speak openly about it. Yep. I'm not the only introverted leader out there. Um, but I don't need to be the loudest voice in the room. You have said that previously you viewed it in other people viewed being an introvert as a weakness. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, your point is, is well taken that it is a strength and you don't need to be the loudest voice in the room. Where is the strength in just sitting back and listening more? I think that is the key. You just said the key word. It's how you listen. How I, in my job, I have to listen to our employees. I meet with customers. I'm listening to customers. I think there's a way you make connections with people through listening and not through just being the loud voice or being the constant voice or being the one that constantly has to pick up the microphone mm -hmm. because it's the it's the what you do and how you influence and I've realized that over the years that it doesn't I, I think I felt it had to be these tactical things that you had to do yeah. and it's kind of how I learned to present you know I'm now presenting in front of thousands of people which was very hard for me to overcome that that fear, you know, I had the fight or flight, you know, type response, mm -hmm. but I realize as long as they're my words, as long as I'm being authentic to who I am yeah. and I'm presenting in my own authentic way, yeah. that's how I influence and that's how I inspire and that's how I motivate. One of the things, Cindy, as I've covered Salesforce over the years and gotten to know you a bit that has always struck me is sort of your MO that you live by, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So I, uh, when I first started at Salesforce, I met um, someone who became my mentor, still is my mentor today. And the he, CEO? 
that he was a previous yeah. chief operating officer, and that's George Hugh. He's yeah. now um, chief op operating officer at Twilio. And uh, he was mentored by Mark. You know, he came in through the Stanford MBA program. Yeah. But when I met him, we very quickly had a connection point. And after time, he saw talent in me. But he also knew that I needed to be pushed a little bit. Now, part of this is I was getting through, like, you know, what is my next phase? I like being comfortable. I was successful. But he said, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You have to learn to face criticism. It's not just about praise, but it's learning how do you embrace that criticism that really develops you as an executive and as a leader. Yeah. And I learned to do that. And I quickly moved into that HR space um, before I, be, I took the head job. Mm -hmm. And that was very uncomfortable for me. Very uncomfortable. I mean, I I gained a team that was probably wondering why her. Oh, really? You know? Why, her? why do you why? think that? Well, I think I didn't come from the traditional HR background. Sure. So I think there's always logical just normal judgment and criticism about why'd she get picked? You know, it's interesting because we never think our bosses have those vulnerabilities. Mm -mm. No. And I recently just spoke to a group of people in my organization around it because it's normal to feel that way. And But it's also, um, how do you overcome it? You know, and I had to learn to, there's just going to be judgment. There's yep. going to be criticism. I'm also in a role where you just constantly get that anyway. And you just have to find a way to move forward. Let's talk about your, uh, it is a crusade. Can I call it a crusade for equal pay um, <laughs> at Salesforce? Yes. And I think it's influenced corporate America, mm -hmm. frankly, and especially the Valley. In, in a recent 60 Minutes interview you did, mm -hmm. you told Leslie Stahl, you can recall times in your own career where you wondered if you were receiving mm -hmm. fair pay, but you chose not to investigate it because you didn't want to be known as the complainer. Correct. When I read that, I like tears welled up in my eyes mm -hmm. because I feel like that all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel like when I'm saying something, I'm the complainer. Mm -hmm. There she is again. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that for you. Well, I think... You know, going through equal pay at Salesforce caused me to reflect back a lot in my career. And there were definite times when I said to myself, did I get the right, you know, salary coming into an organization? Everything was based off what I had previously made because at companies I went to work at. And I, from a raise to a stock refresh, you know, there were times when I just questioned it inside of me, but I wasn't vocal and I didn't feel that I had the permission to be vocal about it and to challenge things. And that's why this was so important at Salesforce, not just doing the assessment, but then how do you create the environment where women feel, okay, equal pay is part of our culture, it's part of the values at Salesforce. How do you, how do you uh, make sure that women feel it's permissible to yeah. challenge? And to speak up and to, and to raise up. their hand. Mm -hmm. So going back to this mission, this mm -hmm. crusade that you're on, tell us how you realized we have a pay problem mm -hmm. here at our company. So it started in about 2015, and a colleague of mine, um, uh, Leila Seka, she's yep. a product executive, and her and I have been personal friends pre-Salesforce. Okay. We both were promoted about the same time, and we definitely put our heads together because we wanted to figure out, we felt this inherent responsibility. How do we elevate more women at Salesforce? How do we make it easier for them? 
So we put together some ideas, and I had my regular one-on-one coming up with Mark. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not preset an agenda with him. He did not know I was bringing Layla to the meeting. Right. And uh, we talked to him about this, these ideas. One was pay. Uh, the other one was actually increasing our maternity leave at the time, which I felt was not where it should have been. What was it? It was, I think, four weeks oh, or something. Or eight weeks. Eight weeks. But now it's 26 weeks, which is wow. great uh, for primary. So you and Layla were speaking over lunch or drinks, and like you both realized there was this pay issue, this pay gap, and you bring it up to Mark? Well, we didn't know, okay. right? I hadn't done, like, I didn't do a but secret assessment anecdotally. first. But I said, we've never done this, and why haven't we done this? And the industry was starting to kind of talk about yeah. it. But then it was kind of this aha moment, like, why are we still talking about For it? Men, the pay gap between men and women. The pay gap between men and women. And so when Mark said, do we have a problem? I said, I don't know. Right. I really don't know. Yep. But here are two things we need to align on. Number one, we can't look under the hood and see money, a big dollar sign, and then shut the hood. And right. number two, you don't just do this once. His initial reaction when you brought it up was? Surpri- a little bit of surprise, like, do we have a problem? Like, is this an issue? And I said, I don't know. Wasn't he, didn't he? I read something to the effect of he was like, that's not possible. Yeah. We're on all these lists of great places to I work. I know. He said, we have a great place to work. We have a great culture. How is it that we're not paying people fairly? Yeah. And I said, Mark, this is a different type of assessment. We've never done this. We've never changed the way we ask questions to applicants. We always say, what's your current comp? Now we say, what is the compensation you expect? How big? That's a big deal right there. That is a big so, deal. T- Explain to people why there is such an issue with employers asking candidates, how much do you currently make? And particularly how that can adversely uh, affect women. Well, I think if you're asking, what is your current, it's just like how I was asked, you know, when I was moving, you know, into different companies, they're, they're likely carrying that gap that has been in place for years and years and years. When you start to, so you're just, you're just bringing it in, right? You're just kind of creating more of a gap, more of an issue. You're not solving the problem. And I think now when you ask candidates, men and women, what is the compensation you expect? It will cause them to pause. It may cause them to do their own level of research or ask questions about the pay philosophy, the compensation structure at the company, whatever that is. So instead you ask what do you expect what to make do you here? expect to make and, and that's a, a very difference. different question the first uh, gap you found mm-hmm. in pay when Salesforce made it made the employees whole and and right-sized it that cost millions of dollars yes right how much was it about three million the first year and now there have been three rounds of this there have right? yes why is it a continuing process <laughs> why does it have to keep happening and what's the lesson for other companies there I think this is my biggest aha moment was after the first assessment, the two questions I keep getting are, why'd you do it again? And why'd you have to pay again? And I guess I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised by that, but of course it's an audit, like any other audit. Unless you can say you have flawless systems, right. flawless processes. Yep. For us, we do, for example, a lot of M&A. So as you're acquiring companies, you're acquiring their, acquiring their pay discrepancy. Yes, well, and not to say their pay practices were wrong for them, 
but now they're part of Salesforce. Okay. And we need to ensure that they are being brought mm. in in a fair and equitable way. And in that one year, we did 14 mm-hmm. acquisitions. That's the largest amount we had ever done. Sure. And that caused us to have some adjustments. Mark Benioff, the CEO, uh, said on 60 Minutes, quote, there's a cultural phenomenon here where, mm-hmm. people, where women are paid less. Um, how... Is this a cultural phenomenon across Silicon Valley? And are you, I mean, do you think enough is being done outside of Salesforce to, oh. to, to make it right? I mean, a lot of people are talking about it, but not every company is doing audits like this. No, not, everybody, not everybody's doing audits. And I think it's, this is not a Salesforce issue. This is not even a tech industry issue. This, the, is, this goes across multiple industries. It's not a U.S. issue. Yeah. Um, you're starting to see assessments being done in different countries now. Um, being mandated by the government. So this is not something that I believe will go away. I think it's just companies will be forced to be more transparent. But, uh, you know, it's hard to force companies to do things. Mm. And there are many people who say, whoa, 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 the government should not get too involved here. The government should not force companies to do things. I just want to read this startling stat, the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Mm. Report, which was last year, 2017. It found declining gender equality in the workplace and political representation for the first time in 2006, meaning we're going backwards. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. fell to 49th place out of 144 when it comes to that gap. Why do you think that this persists in America? And is there a role for government and mandates? Well, I don't I, I don't want to speak too much on the government because I honestly think it's it's the tone from the top. And it's what CEOs are should be held accountable to. I, they they set the tone. They set the vision. I mean, Layla and I could not have done this without Mark Benioff said, saying, go do it. Mm-hmm. And not just go do it. Make this, this is now part of our culture. This is part of our philosophy. But it's his tone from the top. And that starts to shift behavior down the chain. But I don't think you can... You need to, CEOs need to make it comfortable. Well, but then you're betting, right, that, that all CEOs are going to do the right thing. Well, I would like to see them. I think... I applaud them when they come out and they say, we're doing this assessment. This is now part of our culture. This is not something Salesforce wants to own. So do you think there is a role for government um, on these issues, whether it's quotas like we see in Germany for corporate boards having women or what we just saw pass in California? I know, what yes. do you? I mean, California has passed new legislation that means that corporate boards of public companies have to have at least one woman, mm-hmm. and then it goes up the bigger mm-hmm. the board gets and as, as the number of years that go by. I, I, government definitely has a role to play. I think, you know, where I see it is they have a role to play, but so do the CEOs, and they have that accountability and the responsibility to do that, mm-hmm. in my opinion. More from my conversation with Salesforce's Cindy Robbins after the break. Salesforce board is 10 men, three women. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Do you think companies should strive? Should Salesforce strive for 50-50 female male representation? Well, I would love to see 50-50. I would love uh, to see, for example, I would see, I'm a Latina. I would love to see more Latina women on boards, not just at Salesforce, but just on boards in general. And um, I think 50-50 is a great balance to achieve. Why does it matter for the business? It it just makes good business sets. Yes. Is it the right thing to do? Absolutely. But if you think about when you're creating this diverse workforce, it's kind of, you know, 
I, it goes back to my saying about what I want for Salesforce is to be viewed as a great place to work. Mm -hmm. And that means a diversity of ideas. That means an inclusive workforce. And just imagine the talent you can attract and retain to make it a great place to work and be successful and make your customers successful. That just makes good business sense. It, it doesn't seem like, it, it's funny how it has to be the, uh, an argument we have to persuade, you know, but it just it's just the right thing to do on many levels. You know, often the discussion about getting women onto the corporate boards mm -hmm. and into the C-suite is about the pipeline, right? And yes. it's about the jobs they have leading up there. Yes. That is something that you are also leading yes. at Salesforce, the term, I think, within the company, women's surge. Yes. But there is something fascinating that Mark Benioff has done, and that is that there was, at one point, you were in some meeting with him mm -hmm. a few years ago, if not more, and he looked around the room and he said something to the effect of, where are the women? Um, and then from there, it has become mandated within the company that in these meetings, you know, with, mm -hmm. with, with the higher ups, at least 30% of the attendees are women. Yes. How did this happen <laughs> and what has it changed? Well, I benefited from that. I was one before I became the head of, of employee success. I, he invited me to one of those meetings. And I, I knew my job was to stay invited. There's accountability on both sides, right. right? The door's open, yeah. but I have an accountability stay to stay invited. I think the brilliant thing that Mark has done is it's these tactics, these tactics that lead to a bigger strategy and a bigger overall vision of what we want to do from a culture perspective. That starts to shift, like I said, behavior down the chain so that it shouldn't just be Mark's meetings. It should be Mark's direct's meetings doing the same thing and on and on and on. I also think it's given, you know, for me now as an officer of the company, it's given me permission when I'm in certain meetings. You know, if there's 15 people around the room and I'm the only woman to say to the organizer of the meeting, why am I the only woman in this meeting? Do you do that? I do do that. Good for I you. do that, that because I think we've created this culture now where it feels like it's permissible to say that. There um, are some that feel as though sort of something uh, akin to women surge mm -hmm. means man down. Mm -hmm. And there, there have been books written, mm -hmm. man down, right? The rise of women means, you know, the decline of men. Make the argument against that. Oh, I think that's silly. I mean, sorry. Personally, I think that's silly. Um, Tell me how you really feel. I mean, I know, I know. I, look, I think there is room at the table for both men and women, but we need to make the room. And if it means, you know, bringing another table or yeah. bringing in more chairs, then let's do that. There but I go. think there is room for both of us. Um, what has the impact been on, on the company? Because you've said it's important to understand your company's appetite for transparency. Mm -hmm. Meaning, like, you have to really believe your company wants to truly open the books and show the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. Um, how does someone know if their company really wants transparency and really wants to change and well, do that hard work? I think it's what are you trying to do from a cultural perspective? And I think if you, um, you know... I wasn't asking any of these questions when I was entering the workforce after college. I wasn't asking about the culture, the values, or what does the CEO stand for? I didn't have sites like Glassdoor right. that I could look at to tell me what was going on in the company. But I do think transparency leads to trust, ultimately. 
You know, if you are as transparent with your employees and your customers, you're gaining their trust. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's kind of what you want. Does transparency mean to, as a company and a leader, also admit where you have fallen short? Oh, absolutely. I think there are two things. There's, there's definitely power in data. And the data will tell you the good, and the data will tell you the bad. Right. Just like data told us where we were falling short from a gender pay perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's that that leads you to say, okay, what's your strategy to move forward and to fix this? Um, But I think the power is in the data and how you use it. And the way I'm I'm asking questions around data I've never asked before. You know, I'm I'm looking under the hood like I, I haven't ever. What are you seeing? Well, you know, take, for example, the first time we did the pay assessment. Okay. Um. Then it led me to believe, well, how are we distributing merit? How are we distributing um, all types of rewards, Mm -hmm. promotions? How do we get more women into leadership? How does their promotion equate um, to their performance? And then how does it equate to performance and behavior? Mm -hmm. So it's these are just questions I wasn't asking. I wasn't pulling the data. And you have to make sure that you're kind of looking under the hood. (laughs) There you go. Let's talk about diversity. Um, when you look at Salesforce diversity numbers, overall, the company is about 69% men, mm-hmm. 30% women. Tech jobs, 78% men, about a, a quarter women. Leadership, 78% men. Mm-hmm. Where do those numbers need to be? Oh, those numbers need to be a lot better. We're nowhere near where we want to be. But I think it's how you measure progress okay. and what are you doing. And I think, you know, I've been to a lot of conferences and summits and I've been on panels um, where we talk a lot about this, you know, I was just at the Fortune Most Powerful Women yes, Summit. Amazing this was a big gathering. topic, and I, you know, I was talking to someone to say, I think we have to get down to more of the tactics. I think the conversation's been up here. I think the, we all have the same goal in mind. We're all fighting for it, but. We have to get more down into the tactical level. How do we get more women in leadership? How do we get more women in the C-suite? How do we ensure equal pay? What are the tactics that you're doing that ultimately drive the strategy going forward? Mm-hmm. So in terms of outside of gender mm-hmm. diversity, the breakdown at Salesforce now, 65% white, Caucasian, 3.9% mm-hmm. Hispanic. You've spoken about the personal importance to you yes. being a Latina. Mm-hmm. 2.5% African-American employees. Where do you want to get those numbers? Those, I mean, those numbers are pretty low right now. And we want to do more around those numbers. So there are a few things that we're trying to do. First is our university recruitment program. Okay. And how, do, how are we working with schools that have a diverse population in terms of the student population? And then we have other programs like Year Up. Which is amazing It's group. an amazing group of people. Um, we bring their interns on every single year. Everyone listening who doesn't know what it is, Google the 60 Minutes Year <laughs> Up. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, and we've uh, just launched a workforce development program in partnership with Deloitte uh, that we are in the first year of its program, and which has been great about reskilling people that want to come back into the workforce, including youth. So important. So I think those programs are great. And there's a plethora of others, Girl Scouts. I mean, I could just go on and on yeah. and on. But then as a company, how, do, how are you ensuring to bring them on? So I think for us, the next level of conversation is what are the entry points? Okay. How many entry points do you have? This is one reason why we do partner with a Deloitte. They're a huge organization. And in some ways, they can bring on more than maybe Salesforce can. Well, and also, Cindy, doesn't it then become 
you know, how do we as a firm and a company hold ourselves accountable? Yes. Like in five years, do you think you'll sit down and take a real look under that hood at these numbers and say, okay, where are we? We were 3.9% Hispanic mm-hmm. five years ago. Where are we now? Yes. I mean, we, that needle needs to be moving, moving, moving forward. Now, it is hard to move the needle. It really is hard. You, it's not an easy thing. I think a lot of people say, oh, you went from 30 point whatever to 30.9. Is, but at, so, at some point, it's how, it hard? Well, you have to employ a lot. So it goes to the number of positions, the entry-level points. There's a lot of factors. Um, and they'll, they'll vary by company. Um, your background is Mexican-American? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how that has shaped you mm. in growing up? Well, uh, two of the hardest-working parents and best role models. Um, my mother and father grew up in Del Rio, Texas. Mm-hmm. And border town. Border town. And uh, I have an older brother. He's eight years older than me. Um, he was born in Del Rio as well. Then they moved to Northern California. And my father, um, my father did not come, neither of them came from a lot. Uh, my father used to pick cotton out in the fields. Really? He never graduated from high school. Um, my mother did graduate from high school. And when, she, when they moved to Northern California, she went to work at an insurance company that led her into real estate. So no college for either of them? No college. You're the first. Yes, I was the first in the family to go. My brother, my brother didn't go to college either. Um, so it was, you know, we moved to Northern California and my parents worked tirelessly. There was no lavish vacations, nothing. In fact, we drove to uh, Del Rio every summer to see the family. Um, but what I saw from my parents, it was very unique because my mother became the breadwinner. My mother became a very successful real estate agent um, in Los Altos. And my father kind of had the nine to five job. And my father was the one that had dinner waiting for us that took us everywhere where we needed to go. A 60 year marriage, I just, my oh. father just passed, um, know, which so was very sorry. hard. But I learned about working hard. I learned about values. I learned about marriage. Um, you know, then I would go to... 60 years. I know. And then we, I would go to, to Texas, and you would see kind of a different culture. I remember as a kid growing up, you know, you see the, the women in the kitchen yeah. and the women cleaning. But how I grew up, my mother was the driver, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and the, their partnership was so strong, so supportive, Never a jealous moment of anything. My father was just so proud um, of everything my mother achieved, and but she couldn't have done it without him. And what about you, Cindy? I know you recently lost him. Yes, he must have been pretty proud of what you built and what you've achieved. He, he, uh, he, he was. He, uh, he was a light of my life. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's, it, it was hard to lose him, but he... Uh, Do you remember one of the things he said that, I don't know, I know with my dad, I think about, there's a few of those memories that I'll, things I'll never forget, even though yeah. I was young when I lost him, but are, it, something he said to you as you started to have all the success? He had dementia, uh, for he had dementia and he had Parkinson's, so unfortunately he comprehended bits and pieces of it. Yeah. But he knew when I was rising up at Salesforce, he knew I was going to be very successful. I think with my father, he always said, just stay grounded. 
in who Stay you are. Grounded. Stay grounded in who you are. Remember, it's about family. Without your family, you don't have anything. Um, and so uh, he was pr he was proud when you know I got married, and I have a very supportive husband. You know, who's very proud of all of my success. True story. I just met him. He's I know. Today. <laughs> he's in the room. He's in the room for the first time. Oh, this yeah? is the first time he's actually oh. seen me speak on this. More from my conversation with Salesforce's Cindy Robbins after the break. So your Mexican-American mm -hmm. heritage, that goes back to whom? Your parents? Their parents? Yes. Both of them are uh, Mexican-American and then um, great-great-grandparents. Got it. Well, I, I'm interested in your read on um, mm. the rhetoric around immigrants, mm -hmm. especially Mexicans currently uh, from the administration, mm -hmm. given your background. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think when you hear it? I think when I heard and watched the separation of families, I was very... Um, I just think it's just inhumane. I, I don't understand. I don't know what the logic is around it. I, um, it's just very hard to comprehend and very hard to hear. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the policy. I don't, I, I don't even understand where it's moving forward. And, and the rhetoric that, that uh, the president used as a candidate about uh, Mexicans coming into this country, mm -hmm. um, for you, <laughs> And the, the story you just told us about about your family and your upbringing. Mm -hmm. What I mean, what is your take, and what do immigrants contribute to this I mean, country? Immigrants contribute so much to who we are as a country, our values, our culture, to the economy. You know, if you just look at business sense, just in in terms of the economy, I don't I don't agree with the administration's point of view on this. The Me Too movement, mm. you know, I, I always struggle with movement or moment. It's clearly <laughs> not just a moment. It's a sea change. Right. Or hoping to right. be a sea change. Um, what does it mean to you personally and, and mm. professionally in your capacity? Well, I think the Me Too movement, first of all, I applaud women that speak up. I really do. I think as much as we can give them a safe zone and um, a culture of permission to do that, I just think I there's no, there's no argument against it that I can think of. I just think it's the right thing to do. So I've applauded all these women for coming forward. In my role, this is what I strive, right, is how do I continue to give women a safe environment to speak up, whether it's happening to them or they see it happening or they hear it happening. Has it changed how you lead in your role at Salesforce? I think... It, it hasn't really changed the way I lead as much as it is in ensuring that we're doing everything we can, um, especially my organization, to kind of be those the stewards of, you know, do we give them all the mechanisms to, to speak up? Anonymously. Anonymously, we have a third-party hotline that they can call, mm -hmm. they can email to. Even when I look at Glassdoor, and I see something, yeah. and I see something that might be disturbing or they're raising a complaint, I immediately respond to it and explain to them, again, the avenues that they can use to come forward. What is the role um, for especially male mm -hmm. leaders in this moment? Well, this is a big topic that I have um, been talking about, just the role of men 
in the gender equality discussion because in my own career at Salesforce, how I elevated, yes, I earned it. Yes, I achieved it. But I had advocates, I had champions, I had sponsors, I men. had a mentor. Yeah, well, your mentors. All men. Yeah, me too. They were all men. And, um, you know, and I've always thanked them. I've always gone back to thank them. Yes, I earned it, but they helped me, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I kind of go back to men now to say, who are you sponsoring? Not, just, not just mentoring, sponsoring. Sponsoring, advocating for, championing. What are you doing to help a woman get to the next level, mm-hmm. get to the board seat? How are you advocating for them? Because we can't do this without them. We, we, they need to be part of the conversation because they're in the position of power and they probably will be mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of need them to be part of this with us, not stand alongside us and lift us up. Yes. Which, you know, Many are, mm-hmm. and I have experiences and owe a lot to mm-hmm. men who have done that for me yes. as well. When you talk about sexism in Silicon Valley mm. as a whole, you're in the thick of Silicon Valley right. at Salesforce, um, the biggest employer, I think, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, is this a moment of reckoning? I think, you know, you, you, heard, you hear the, the phrase bro culture, right? The bro culture of Silicon Valley. Is it real? I think it. I think definitely it exists. Um, I think, uh, but it's all about again. It goes back to the culture of the company, and what are you doing to mitigate that? You know, does it get? You know, do you have a do you have values? Do you have um, just you know what is it that you're trying to do within the company to mitigate the bro culture? And I think. You know, are we a long way from from erasing that in Silicon Valley? Potentially. But I think it it does go back to the tone from the top. Is it changing, Cindy? I mean, do you get a sense that leaders outside of Salesforce are really taking this seriously and not just saying the right things, but doing the right things? I think so. I, I think it's I think it's just raising consciousness to little things like how you bond after hours at work doesn't work for both. Doesn't work for both necessarily. Um you know, how you spend free time really bonding with your team or golf outing or whatever it is. And also just, I think, how you treat each other in meetings, right? How you treat um, Are the women's ideas being listened to equally with men? Yes. You can tell in the room who's paying attention when someone's speaking or if someone's interrupting somebody. Um, and I've, I've now started to see where men will say, I've witnessed this a few times, where men will say, wait, 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 she's not done speaking. That's great. Right? Yeah. Let her speak. And that is like everyone just kind of pulls back because it's like these little things just raise consciousness. What about for you personally, as much as you're comfortable sharing? Mm. Have you been discriminated against mm-hmm. ever? Have you been harassed? And there were times in my career, um, early in my career, where there was behavior that happened um, and I didn't know exactly how to deal with it, you know, because do you complain? Do you say something? How will that impact my career after that? Will I be treated differently? I think all of those, whether it's pay or behavior, I think all of that played into um, my mindset earlier in my career. Did it steal in you sort of a resolve, if you will, to when you were in power, which you are now? 
to make sure it doesn't keep I happening? Think, I think you just said the phrase poppy because I think as I elevated and then I became a, very, a senior executive and officer of the company with that carries responsibility. Yeah. Right? Whether yeah. I'm comfortable with it mm-hmm. or not comfortable with it, but I have that responsibility now. Maternity and paternity mm-hmm. leave both incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you laid out maternity leave. I guess parental leave is now. Parental leave. 60, tw- 26 60 weeks. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we wish. 26 <laughs> weeks for moms and dads. 26 weeks for the primary caregiver, and we also offer 12 weeks for the secondary caregiver. It obviously costs a lot of money, but as someone who has lived through it with a husband who took three months off mm-hmm. when his firm allowed it for our second child, it makes a world of difference. It does. Yet what you have is this what's sort of called the mommy bias, right? When women have children, their pay, this is overall mm-hmm. statistic, goes down 6%. When men have children, their pay overall goes up 4%. What? What? And what can be done to address this? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a mindset change, right? It's purely a mindset change. I think how you bring new moms coming back into the workforce is really important. What's the returnship like? What's the support system they're given? How do you ensure they're, you know, they're being considered for high paying jobs, mm-hmm. bigger jobs, that you're not penalizing them in some way? So a lot of this is, goes back to unconscious bias training and things like that, because it's just about raising the consciousness. And I, I go back to the power of data. The more you can raise the data yes. to these leaders about these decisions that you have made mm-hmm. have dictated this. Is this what you want your team's right. makeup to look like? What is the hardest conversation you've had with a leader about that? I mean, have you ever had to sit down with someone at the company mm-hmm. and just say, look, like, you're not getting it. Here's what needs to change. Yes. <laughs> How'd that go? I think when I look at data, which I look at all the time, yes. right, whether it's gender uh, parity, it's uh, promotional data, it's women in leadership, women coming back from uh, maternity leave, I, if I see something, I raise it up and I say, is this, do you still stand by this decision? Yeah. Can you relook at this? So I'm constantly trying to challenge. Again, this goes back to that responsibility I feel now in my role Mm -hmm. to challenge these things because I really believe we all have biases of some sort, right? We just do. But if you raise this up in in their consciousness, Mm -hmm. if you provide the data behind it, I think that's really the power. Companies taking a social stand, Mm. that is something Salesforce, Mm -hmm. Mark Benioff, CEO, has not shied away from. Mm -hmm. And increasingly over the last five years, I think we've seen a market change, whether Mm -hmm. it's Howard Schultz at Starbucks or so. Companies don't seem to be able to Mm -hmm. exist anymore and and thrive Mm -hmm. if they don't tell the public and their customers and their employees what they stand for. Mm -hmm. So the key example of it with Salesforce was, of course, in Indiana, Mm -hmm. when Mark Benioff uh, threatened to pulled the entire company and their business out of Indiana mm-hmm. because of uh, a, a, of a law. And it was then Vice President Mike Pence, who was then governor of Indiana, um, that was seen as being anti-gay mm-hmm. and took that stand. And you were high up mm-hmm. at the company at that time. Can, I was. Can you talk to me about that and what it has meant for Salesforce going forward? Because ever since then, it's been very clear where Salesforce mm-hmm. stands on social issues. Mm-hmm. They can be divisive issues. They can be. I think... You know, how that came about was pure and simple. Mark was listening to the employees 
employees that were saying that they did not feel comfortable with what was about to be passed. And so he listened. He knew he was in a position to do something, to drive change, impact change, and he did. And then he tweeted something. (laughs) That's true. The power of the tweet, right? There you go. And And then we were all frantically calling for interviews with him. (laughs) So it goes. Which is Um, true. But it was amazing, the reaction with that. Not just socially on Twitter, but internally with our employees, that they felt heard. They felt heard from the top. They might not have had a direct relationship with Mark. Uh-huh. What were those discussions like internally? Mm-hmm. Was there any talk between you and Mark and the senior officers about, are we as a company going to come out and take a stand on this and make this this threat? Oh, yeah. I mean, but I think it, it kind of, uh, there was a lot of aha moments yeah. from that, you know. Yes, he, he did a, tr- there was a power of the tweet, right? But internally, the reaction from these employees that, He's hearing us. But did you know he was going to do the tweet? Or did oh, the tweet... no. No I one know. No one asked. I know. He certainly didn't ask for permission. This no. is not a, okay. No. And then it was, you know, then he said, I'll relocate anyone. I'm like, okay. Didn't know about that either. Uh, but that's okay. We'll go for it. But what did it mean to the employees? Oh, so much. I think for any social issue, any issue, um, when you have a CEO that's hearing you, that's listening to you, May agree, may not agree, right? Um, but the, just having that opportunity be heard, mm-hmm. that's really what drives our culture, if you think about it, that employees feel that they have a safe zone, they have a way to be heard. But not all employees agree on these things, no. right? So how do you walk a line as a company that employs people of all different mm-hmm. political persuasions, mm-hmm. all different beliefs on issues mm-hmm. like this? Um, because there's no way that one decision one way or the other is going to make everyone happy. Right. So how do you tackle that as a company? You, you have to create what I call psychologically safe environment for people to speak up. And that means it's done in a respectful way, right? Because if you don't, then people will be afraid to speak up in the future. But what about the company taking a stand like it did in Indiana? I mean, I, clearly not every employee agreed with that not stand. Not every employee agreed with it. But I think, do we talk about it as a management team? Yes, we talk about it. What is the right thing to do? Why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. We ask ourselves a lot of questions and we have thoughtful debate around it. And in the end, we try to do what we feel is mm-hmm. best. So, Cindy, what is next mm-hmm. for you? Uh, because I was thinking through this whole interview, hmm, we certainly don't have enough women in public mm-hmm. office. <laughs> Not announcing anything. Do you ever think about running for any form of public office? I, you know, I, uh, well, I've thought about that early in my career. I I really did. I thought maybe I would move to D.C. um, And my career just didn't go there. I think for me, where I am right now is just continuing to influence and impact change in a very Hmm. meaningful way. Um, And we're not we're not even done around gender equality. We're not done. We're just barely moving the needle. And I have a lot more that I want to do in that area. So You do realize you're a young woman with a lot more of your career ahead of you. I feel very young. <laughs> so it's not a no. It's not a no. Maybe down the road? Maybe down the road. All right. Quick rapid fire, okay? No, no. Have you ever done this? It's fun. 
Short one-word answers oh, or so. Oh, no. All right. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? Twitter. <laughs> Desktop or mobile? Mobile. <laughs> Do, does, Mark doesn't even have a computer, I heard. Or he no. like, does I don't everything think on I, his phone. I don't remember the last time I saw any type of laptop device in front of him. Really? And no. what about for you? Do you do most of your work? I'm now, tra like, I'm here all week on right. work, and I did not bring my laptop. Uh, wow. No, just my mobile device. Wow. Yeah. Tech device you can't live without. My phone. To a desert island you would bring? My husband. Oh, good answer, <laughs> given that he's in the room. Favorite place to visit? Hawaii. Ideal weekend plans? Uh, oh, wine country. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> and finally, who's your hero? Oh, well, I think because my father is just so top of mind right now, um, I can't think of any other hero right now than my father. Cindy Robbins, thank you. Thank you, Poppy. Uh, for fighting internally, but for fighting for all of us. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.